Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Jessica Smedley to the show. Dr. Smedley is a licensed clinical psychologist and has her own practice, Smedley Psychological Services, where she is known as Dr. Jess. She received her BA in psychology from UC Riverside and her MA in counseling psychology with an emphasis on marriage and family therapy from the University of San Francisco. She received her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, where she also completed two additional master's degrees, one in Christian leadership and another in clinical psychology. Dr. Smedley has served as the Ohio Psychological Association Diversity Committee Chair and is a past diversity liaison diversity subcommittee chair for the 2020 APA Practice Leadership Conference. Dr. Smedley also was elected to the APA membership board to serve in the diversity slate for a three-year term. Finally, we'll highlight one other aspect. She helped to co-launch an initiative with other licensed healers of the Association of Black Psychologists, which we will discuss later in this interview. Dr. Smedley, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know that uh, a lot of our audience members are going to really enjoy hearing about your academic journey as well as what you did after you uh, left the seminary. Uh, but to start off, just kind of give us a, a high-level view. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am currently in the D.C. area. I am a uh, California Bay Area native. Decided to branch off and continue my education. Uh, we'll talk about you know those things later. But I was also an athlete, so I ran track in college. That was great. Uh, pledged a great sorority, Delta Sigma Theta uh, Incorporated, uh, and enjoy working out, enjoy cooking, have a beagle who you might hopefully not might not hear <laughs> today, <laughs> but. Uh, that's a little bit about me. I also read someplace uh, that you were a dancer. Yes. How could I forget? Yes. A love for ballet. Hence the Julia Jameson in the background. <laughs> I was I was noticing that in the in the background as well. So um, yeah, I haven't met a dancer, teacher, psychologist before. So you're my first today. <laughs> <laughs> so usually we go in kind of chronological order for our audience, and it's nice to talk about your undergraduate experiences first. So I did look at your Vita and I looked at where you went. Um, at what point did you know that you really wanted to go the psychology route or go for your psychology degree? Sure. So I started off as a biology major at UCR. I was really interested in the medical sciences and thinking pre-med, pre-med. Um, then uh, organic chemistry happened and then physics happened. <laughs> and sort of uh, challenged my direction. Right. Uh, but then also started taking neuroscience electives and studying the brain. And so around, ironically, the beginning, mid of my third year, it was mm -hmm. when I switched majors okay. and just really got delved into the psychology world that way. 
Okay. And you already mentioned you went to UC Riverside. So um, after two or three years, you, you kind of realized, well, you know, this brain stuff is kind of interesting. And it's a little bit uh, more interesting than this other stuff that I find a little bit more difficult. I don't want to speak for you, but that's what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what you heard. <laughs> so that's always fun. And, and I noticed that you stayed in uh, that same area or relatively in that same area when you went on to receive your Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology. And I, I mentioned that you emphasized in marriage and family therapy at the University of San Francisco. What, what made you choose um, USF? Sure. So I knew that I wanted to get my master's um, in a counseling program. I also knew that I wanted to go back home for a little while because I'm from the Bay Area. Okay. So it was a combination of uh, location, uh, having more financial support at home. Mm -hmm. That's a reality of education. Uh, and uh, just being closer to family and having that support. And it was a really great program, too. I believe USF is a, a private Jesuit university. Is that right? Yeah, so yes. I hear you saying, yes, it was nice to get back home, close to the family, have that financial support. What came into play in your decision of going to that particular university versus other universities in the same area? Sure. Um, I honestly think it was the schedule that they offered. I, I can't say it was because of it being a specifically private institution or their value system per se, but it was a really unique opportunity to maintain the job that I already had in the mental health field uh, and to be able to still take those evening and weekend courses to fulfill the, the commitment. Um, so it was a matter of flexibility and being able to get my hours. It worked out really well logistically. Sure, sure. And what job that was actually one of my next questions is, what did you do while you were attending? So what job were you uh, performing and what your role was there? Sure. So I worked for Seneca Center, which uh, is still in the Bay Area, and they offer lots of mental health and supportive services to youth and families, uh, predominantly youth who have difficulties with um, behavior problems, trauma histories, complex trauma backgrounds. And so I worked at the time at their um, residential treatment facility. I'm forgetting the acronym because they've since closed uh, due to structural and financial changes. But it was for uh, kids who really had those significant um, tra traumatic backgrounds. Sure. And I, and I noticed, and we'll talk a little later, that you kept looking into that topic in that area even afterwards. Uh, thinking back when you were that age and you were in that position, what were some of the most challenging um, items that you had to deal with in that role? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of audience members think, oh, you're a psychologist. Okay, great. But they don't really understand some of the challenges and some of the things that you really loved and some of the things that, boy, I wish this wasn't here, you know, uh, and I didn't have to deal with it. So speak a little bit about that. Absolutely. I honestly think that that experience shaped so much of my career, uh, some of those foundational understandings of, of psychology, of what mental health can look like, what trauma looks like uh, for certain communities or for certain you know, children, certain backgrounds. Um, it was eye-opening to experience how behaviors can manifest and how emotions manifest uh, to the point to where 
they need additional supports because they're not safe in their homes or their communities or the home is not uh, the optimal place for the child to be. So being exposed to what um, state care looks like and, and um, being more educated about the foster care system or the adoptive system, that was just really, really uh, enlightening. Um, and I think when I think about advocacy as well, which maybe we'll talk about later, I think that's where some of those foundational interests began too, um, because I think that there are a lot of vulnerable populations where advocacy is so important, whether it's in the local community level or the policy level. So I don't know and if that answers, but it was a variety. <laughs> it does. It does. And it, you know, it gives me a better idea of what you were dealing with. And I was going to add one other thing, if you don't mind. It, it really depends on the region and the area that you're in, whether or not your clients, uh, in this case, some of the traumatized uh, kids or, or adolescents, have a support outside of you, you know, their family, friends. And if they don't, then you're really the only person that they can really go to to release and, and discuss some of these things. Absolutely. Um, that was profound uh, because outside of the staff members, a lot of them were extremely isolated. Uh, and of course, that exacerbates symptoms because social support is one of the primary factors of resilience. Mm -hmm. And then you actually attended from uh, the University of San Francisco. You attended Fuller Theological Seminary. And tell us how you ended up there. Sure. So, interestingly, when I was in my master's program, I was sort of ambivalent. I was thinking, oh, I'll get a master's degree, become a therapist. This would be great. And then as my network continued to broaden, it's like, oh, there's so much more out there. What if I keep doing this? Um, also, I have always had an affinity for my own faith background and for church background. So what does this look like for there to be a program out there where I can potentially integrate these two things? Sure. Uh, I met a friend um, who told me about the program and said, oh, you know, you should look at this, apply. Literally, that's what I did. And it just seemed like it fell in my lap. <laughs> Um, so there's no competitive GRE crazy story. It was just something that was a sequence of interests and events that seemed to align. I was going to say it was meant to be, you know, so it sounds like it was meant to be. Now, one thing I wanted to point out is uh, I mentioned that you have your doctoral degree. You actually have a PsyD, not a PhD. Uh, does Fuller Seminary, I didn't get enough time to look into it. Do they offer both? And if, if so, why did you choose the PsyD route versus the PhD route? Absolutely. They do offer both. Um, so generally, I usually tell people that the PhD route is more heavily emphasized on uh, research and academia focus, whereas the PsyD route is now differentiated as it's more clinically focused. So people who want to spend their time the practitioner route. Uh, and so my therapy background uh, and knowing that I want to continue in that way and really hone on um, diagnosis and testing skills and broaden my therapy background is why I continue to choose that route. It doesn't mean that we didn't do a dissertation or the research right. <laughs> and right. all those right. things. But yeah, the, and the emphasis is different. 
Yes, yes, definitely. And, and before we started talking today, uh, we kind of talked about this briefly, and it is changing. I mean, it used to be, if you're going to go into psychology, and you want to go into the academic field or become a psychologist, almost always PhD. And so the PsyD is relatively new, but it is more focused on that practical, you know, application clinical uh, aspect versus the uh, uh, academic research route. So uh, I also noticed that you received two additional master's degree while you were at Fuller. You were very busy, obviously, while you were there. But uh, one of them, as I mentioned in the introduction, you uh, received a master's degree in Christian leadership and then another in clinical psychology. What made you go that, those extra steps? You already had your master's in counseling psychology. So why, why did you feel the need to uh, add more? You just wanted to impress me for this interview, I think. <laughs> no. <laughs> no impression did not want any additional debt <laughs> right. um, the, um, some programs are set up to be joint degree programs and so that's where the additional masters came in the um, Christian leadership masters was essentially some additional electives outside of the required theological courses that were required of the program uh, in general and so I thought well, you know, that could be something that maybe I'll use later or um, be able to integrate into practice in a later time. Yeah, and based on what uh, my research on you, it, it definitely has come into play, that Christian leadership background, as well as uh, aligning well with your faith and, and helping in your community as well. So very good fit, uh, both of them. Um, as I said, very busy while you're at the seminary. Um, Tell us some of your fondest experiences or memories while attending the Fuller Seminary. Sure. So the first thing that pops in my mind is probably community, uh, building friendships with now colleagues or uh, professors then, uh, still in touch with my advisor. She's wonderful. Um, some leadership experiences early on there. So getting on board with student government or um, creating, maintaining community for some of the Black students that were there. Um, I think the emphasis is, is a combination of community and leadership. Having opportunity to TA, that was pretty cool to try to sort of build and tap into early teaching experience. Um, yeah, I think those are the ones that stand out the most. Okay. And I wasn't planning to ask this question, but now that you brought it up, the TA, do you, do you find that you love teaching as well as the practical side of psychology? Tell me about if I put you on the spot right now, which one would you prefer and, and tell me why? Hmm. At this phase of my career, it's still the practical, but I'm becoming more open to teaching again because I'm not currently Mm -hmm. but I am thinking of an adjunct in my future. <laughs> okay, well, good. I don't know if that's the secret that you're letting out live first year, but... <laughs> <laughs> nope. You know, a, a lot of our um, uh, audience members ask, hey, what was important to you when selecting a graduate psychology program? Mm -hmm. I think for me, it was a little bit different because of the way it, it happened and because of the unique interest that I had. Mm -hmm. um, but if I were to look back, I would say to consider what it is that you might be interested in and see if those sort of uh, options are available based on what faculty you're doing at the program. 
um, make sure it's APA accredited mm -hmm. for licensing purposes. Um, if you are a person of color, whatever color, and that sort of need community identity factors are uh, important to you, seek out professors or current students who might be there and talk to them about their experiences. Um, and the other thing that comes to mind is the internship piece. Mm -hmm. So just ask questions about the program's match rate um, so that you have an idea of how well their students are prepared for the internship process. Yeah, and the graduation rate as well as finding, if they offer something like this, finding new jobs afterwards is also beneficial. Um, you know, I talked about, hey, um, what's important about the psychology program? I've talked to some individuals and they look at the program and they also look at the school. And so mm -hmm. even though you might look at the program and you said, you know, you could look at um, other people of color within that program or the support staff or the academic uh, uh, professors. But if they're not there, look elsewhere and you might find some other supporting groups at the school. So I guess I, I'm going to ask you, you know, you've been three, four different uh, uh, universities now. Uh, what were some of the important factors when you were selecting the school, other than the fact that it kind of fell in your lap, it was a good fit, uh, it was kind of meant to be? Any other things come to mind when you think about when selecting a school? What are some important factors to consider? Hmm. You know, some people, um, for some people, that's really important because of a name or because of a reputation or because of all of the great factors that we can all think of. Um, I think in my case, that wasn't as important to me as was, okay, the outcome, does it fit also my life, location? Um, all schools are expensive, but are there potential for scholarships? Um, do I know other people that have gone here? So I think in my case, it was more personal reasons balanced with some of the obvious academic things. Some of the other things that I'd add based on my uh, discussions with other people would be um, some, you know, I, I met with somebody and, and discussed they were just in one state their entire life up until that point. They wanted mm -hmm. to get out and sure they were accepted to three or four different schools, but this one was the farthest away and they wanted to kind of expand their horizons. So that's another reason why you might do that. Housing or guaranteed housing might come into play. Um, another one is scholarships, grants, anything like that. And since we, you brought that up, one of the questions that I had was, you know, when you're talking about any of these scholarships, grants, fellowships, do you have any other advice, um, regarding funding or other alternatives, um, for, you know, those prospective students who are going out there saying, I don't come from a rich family. I don't have all this money. What are my options available? You know, I don't really have a good answer for that, but what does come to mind is seek out a financial advisor earlier than that. Mm -hmm. Because just because you don't have money doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about money. Mm -hmm. And they can at least tell you, okay, if you're going to borrow, if you're going to do these, here are some things to think about for the future when you think about payoffs. So I think I would emphasize seeking education earlier. Yeah. Than no, that's 
Yeah, good advice. Um, finding people who know more about it than you do is good. Mm -hmm. Finding people who have received uh, fellowships or grants. Um, mm -hmm. One other thing that I would add is if you are going to go the grant route, um, you're going to have to put in the due diligence and the time to do the research to find the appropriate grant because it is very competitive, even more so nowadays than in the past. Uh, and then the other quick one is look at a school or program that offers a TA or a, a teaching assistantship or a fellowship, or um, you could help out in the lab and get a reduction or get a stipend or anything like that. I think I'd add that as well. When I went through my uh, graduate and, and master's and, and uh, worked on the doctorate, I received a stipend uh, when I was doing that. It wasn't a full, it wasn't a free ride, but it was, you know, a stipend that helped. So anything and everything could, could be beneficial there. So. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Before we talk about your practice, I see that you've been very active and continue to be very active in the APA and other associations. I, I mentioned that you served as the Ohio Psychological Association Diversity Committee Chair in 2017. Mm -hmm. How did you find yourself in that role and kind of give advice on to others who want to be more involved in the APA? Um, tell us how you found yourself in that role and then provide some advice. Sure. So at the time I was completing my postdoc and uh, my supervisor was the president of OPA at that time, the Ohio Psychological Association. And so they were starting a leadership development academy. Um, which was wonderful. I still am very close with some of the people that did that program now. Um, and that is where they created a space for early career psychologists to learn about leadership skills and get involved in the association. And after the completion of that program is when um, one of them said, hey, this role is coming open. <laughs> what do you think? Right. <laughs> So that's how that happened. Um, and I held that for about a year until I moved to the D.C. area. Um, so leadership in general, I think starting off at your local state association is a great way to begin. Um, and then keeping an eye out on the APA website for opportunities, whether it's conferences now, things are virtual, but conferences or other leadership courses that are available, um, networking opportunities, um, they're out there, but it's a matter of being intentional and seeking them out. Uh, and your state is a great place to start. Yep. Yep. Starting local, great advice and, and going there. I'd also add that um, don't be afraid to reach out to the current chair and just say, hey, what do you, what do, you do? I'm, I'm interested in, uh, you know, what's your daily activities look like and, and what's our, what are some of the challenges and I'm really interested. They might be able to give you even better, you know, um, advice than we are giving right now. So it really depends on the role. Um, you mentioned the leadership and, and uh, a few years after you served with the uh, Ohio Psychological Association on the diversity uh, um, committee chair, you also uh, became um, the liaison or diversity subcommittee chair for the 2020 APA Practice Leadership Conference. I looked at the history and I could speak to it, but I want you from, from your point of view, tell us more about this and, and more about your experience. Sure. So Practice Leadership Conference is 
in my opinion, one of the best things that APA does. It's an opportunity for states to come together, presidents, uh, early career delegates, diversity delegates, uh, executive directors, leadership essentially of the, of the associations to come together and strengthen leadership skills and advocacy skills. So we also spend time looking at um, policy, practice-related needs, and our conference ends with the day on the hill. Um, so for that particular conference, I had been a few times. And that second time, I got elected to be the diversity liaison elect for the next cycle. So it's a two-year commitment because you're the elect one year and then you serve the role the second year. Okay. Um, and so that role entails sort of working with the committee, uh, creating programming for diversity delegates that are going to be coming to the conference, uh, and really trying to also advocate for, yes, here are things that we are doing with diversity. EDI now is one of the hot terms, um, but how can we also integrate that into practice-related needs or advocacy needs at the Hill? Uh, how can we broaden our social justice framework in psychology. And what was the challenge, most challenging part while you were serving in that role? Hmm. Um, I think we always want to do more than what sometimes time or resources allows. There are mm -hmm. so many wonderful psychologists that come from all over the country there are so many ideas that we have and energy that we come with, but there isn't time to do all of the things or we're not there yet in terms of, you know, whoever's whatever agenda item might be. So it's, it's tempering expectations. Right. <laughs> You're going in there with all these nice, new, bright ideas and, and then you realize, oh, there's some limitations here that I have to consider. So um, I, I also saw that you uh, are active with the DCPA. And for those of you on the uh, call or listening or, or watching on our website, uh, District of Columbia Psychological Association, and you started and co-led the COVID-19 task force to provide some advocacy and services to members in the community. Tell us more about this, because this is really interesting. I, I, I even found an article that kind of highlighted you and your, your work on this. And so while you're talking about it, I'm going to bring that up real quick. Okay. Sure. So obviously last year, we, the world shut down and <laughs> we were trying to figure out uh, as psychologists, how can we show up for our community? And so a group of us, um, mostly members of the board, came together and recruited um, fellow peers within DCPA. And um, oh, I remember that article. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, created virtual support groups, virtual uh, educational town halls, uh, things that would help feel people, help people feel uh, connected and like they essentially were not alone or going crazy. Some of the virtual supportive groups that we did were for people who lived alone or for parents who were trying to handle um, working from home while homeschooling. Um, we did one for clergy members who were trying to support their um, congregations uh, and a few other very specific 
groups who we thought might benefit from additional support. There are articles on the uh, DCPA website just for tips about self-care. Um, and uh, one of the bigger ones was our Juneteenth uh, event. So the, the Black Mental Health, um, that was a really popular one um, because that happened, of course, after the um, George Floyd incident last year. So just a variety of things that we thought could impact our members, our community, and whoever else uh, was interested because we were virtual. Yeah, so a lot of and, times we have people from out of the area as well. Right. I, I read this article a few times, and the one that still sticks, you know, sticks out to me is your statement here. Parents are starting to hit the wall, and mm -hmm. I, I think uh, being a parent myself, um, uh, I can relate to that. Um, and a lot of uh, parents, especially during that time period, so many constraints on them, so many demands, and uh, it's nice to have that outlet and have that uh, available to them uh, to provide that support. So I applaud you on, on being involved in that. Thank you. You are also serving, and I still believe still serving, on the APA membership board. You had a, a three-year term for the diversity slate, and it was uh, for the past three years through 2021. So tell us how you got involved in that and elected to that position. Sure. So um, with APA, you can obviously nominate a peer uh, or you can self-nominate. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually the route that I do. I think okay. that a lot of times we take for granted if we want to start something, we have to wait for someone else to see us or to recognize us, put our name in the hat. But if there's an option and if you're interested, especially as an early career person, to experience leadership, to continue growing those skills, throw your name in the hat. And in my case, it worked. Um, so that's been a really interesting experience. Yes, this is the last year uh, of my term. Um, but that is a great way to, uh, again, strengthen knowledge and awareness of the organization, um, meet um, peers, develop uh, more mentorship relationships, um, and, and contribute, of course. Right, right. That you Definitely. So I, I'm sharing that uh, on the screen right now, membership board, and I noticed that they do this on purpose. They straggle, you know, membership uh, uh, terms. So not everybody's going out or coming in at the same time. And uh, when does it actually end? It shows 21. So when is your actual uh, stop date or end date when you end that three-year term? The end of the, the calendar year. So December. Oh, it is. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So in retrospect, um, you know, you're, it's going to be here before you know it. I can't believe it's already May. Uh, it just seems, <laughs> it seems like we just got started this year. But uh, any experiences or thoughts you can share as you near the end of your term uh, for this position? Interesting. I think it's been um, a good experience. I think there's a lot of insight that you gain, especially from the membership perspective. I think other boards and committees are unique in that they're focused on a specific niche within the field, but membership, we're focused on the people, our members. Mm -hmm. So are there diversity needs? Is there language that we need to address? Are there gaps in who we're attracting? Um, are there 
diversity gaps that we're missing in terms of uh, even the profession. So a lot of us are practitioners or in academia researchers, but what about the applied folks or what about the science uh, people? Um, so just thinking about what we want to be, our identity as an association and all the things that go into the measuring and, and uh, putting together what that looks like. And of course, the contacts, networking, friends that you, uh, um, you know, established during your role uh, come into, and it gives you a different perspective. I, you know, I, I presented at the APA a number of times as well. I never served on any council or any initiative or any uh, board, but mm -hmm. as soon as you do that, you get a different view of how to run that organization, and that's huge. Yes, I was recently elected to council as well, so now it's I'm really getting that bird's eye top view. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> look on the bright side. Look on the bright side. Yeah, it's going to help. Um, I see that you helped co-launch uh, um, an initiative with some fellow licensed healers uh, with the Association of Black Psychologists. Tell us a little bit more about that and why you got involved. Sure. So um, Dr. Jackson is a wonderful psychologist uh, in person, the current or outgoing president now of ABCI. And um, she was looking for additional supports from members to uh, engage in opportunities. I think, well, as we know, the Black community was really, you know, stressed in the past year because of additional uh, traumas that were happening. Mm -hmm. And so the ABCI was receiving a lot of requests for uh, supports. Uh, so the... Um, Healing, the Licensed Healers Initiative was a way, is a way to start organizing more intentionally. All right, who are our licensed members? Um, because our membership structure is very different from other associations. So organizing our licensed members in an intentional way, gaining uh, insight into who might be interested in supporting some of the asks that we were getting and um, beginning to organize supportive spaces and events for both members and for uh, people that were outside in the community that might be asking. So you mentioned that it's structured a little differently. Can you um, talk a little bit more about that? Sure. The uh, membership requirements are far more flexible. Um, you don't necessarily have to be a psychologist. You don't necessarily have to be a mental health professional, really. Um, so in, in that way, the people who are uh, involved is a more broad um, community, mostly psychologists or therapists, of course, uh, but more of a, um, I would say, community um, approach or broadening, you know, what healing looks like isn't really important in the association. So anybody who's really interested in doing that don't hesitate just because you, you're not a licensed psychologist or, or anything like that. If you want to help, reach out and see if you can help. Mm -hmm. Sure. Now, as you mentioned, um, you know, we, we talked about your route going the side E route because you wanted to go on the clinical, more practical side. And that led us to um, your private practice called Smedley Psychological Services, LLC. So when did you know that you wanted to start your own practice? 
I knew a long time ago, it was just a matter of the energy and resources <laughs> and time to actually do it and finding the education that I needed in order to do that. Because yes, I think we all have that one or two unit marketing business class elective, um, but it's it's not, and not the fault of the instructor at all, uh, but it's it's just not what you need to get a business started. <laughs> Right. So it's a combination of learning time um, to actually do it. But I, I knew fairly early on. I'm going to go ahead and share the screen just to give you a little promo here uh, and let everybody see. I, I like the <laughs> website. You had a lot of information on here. Uh, you have a welcome page right here. Kind of talks about your approach. Uh, and then mm -hmm. it talks about, you know, these different areas that we can help or you can help. Listen to me speaking as if I'm, I'm with you. Um, the areas that, that you can help. And then a little history as well. Good picture of you. You have all the pictures I found on the web are, are good of you, by the way. Great smile. Yeah. Got to say that. Um, and then you have a page on here. Well, who are you? And it gives you a lot of information on, you know, your history, your background, your areas of interest some of your roles, and this is where I got most of this information as well. And then really what's important to you. Uh, and then here, yeah, this is where I saw the dancer part. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, nice. good, good website. And um, what's also nice is it kind of brings us to this portion where you uh, have Dr. Jess, and then you have, uh, it just flows, Dr. Jess on black stress. And then you, you give a little bit more information here, and you have all these posts that are very, very wonderful because they're short little snippets where you can kind of um, look at them and uh, look at certain areas. So I, I really love the website. That's what I'm leading up to, if you can tell. So um, easy to easy to navigate and easy to uh, uh, go through as well. So I, I wanted to highlight that for everybody. Thank you. And thanks for the feedback. It's always good to know how people appreciate the navigation. That's good. Now, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, um, talking about your, you know, you said nothing against the teachers back then for the one or two units, but it doesn't prepare you for, you know, uh, starting your own business, basically your own practice. Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges? You mentioned a couple or alluded to a few, but looking back and even now um, through COVID and kind of coming out of COVID, if we're, if we're safe to say that, um, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges? Sure. I think it depends on how you want to structure your business. So that's probably the biggest question. How do you want to uh, find your, your clients? How do you want them to be able to pay you? Do you want to take insurance? Do you want to be uh, cash only? Um, I take insurance. And so that was a learning curve in figuring out uh, how to get paid <laughs> and how to bill appropriately, how to submit claims. Luckily, in 2021, there are electronic health record systems that do all that for you, but you still need to understand what it is that the system is doing so that if a claim doesn't go through or if a client's insurance changes or something, you need to be able to understand how to navigate that. Um, how to so fix I think it. learning yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think learning that new language in itself uh, is a learning curve. Um, other things, I think 
are just figuring out, you know, your schedule, the administrative things. When do you want to do your billing or when do you want to set up with your accountant and figure out taxes and all of those fun things? Uh, so it's it's really putting those things in place that we may have paid someone else to do in the past. Mm -hmm. I was going to add, you're also your own PR manager. Um, and so you have to decide if and when and how you're going to get your word out. Um, was that challenging at first? How did you decide to come up with the website and, and go that route? And we're going to talk about, um, you know, your journal and, and the Dear Black Girl project, if I can call it the project as well in a second. But tell me a little bit more about the PR piece, because I know a lot of uh, our audience are going to ask, okay, I can go to other people that are experts in setting up a business and everything else, but the PR piece, tell me more about that. That's interesting. It's funny because when I first moved to DC is when I started the LLC. I did it within 30 days. And then I think I did the website within that same, well, maybe 60 days. But I didn't branch off independently for a while. I used the website as sort of a foundational, hey, I'm this licensed person in DC now. <laughs> but I'm still going to work for this job and see clients at this group practice for a little while. Right. Um, and I think as I built community here, as I networked, that was helpful. I did start advertising on psychology today and therapy for black girls for the first year, year and a half. I'm still on therapy for black girls. Um, and then when you take insurance, that's free marketing because they list you on their find a provider page. Um, and then when I eventually did leave the group practice, most of my clients stayed with me. So now it's managing, okay, if I have a wait list, how do I manage that? How do I sort of figure out how long the wait list is? How do I keep in touch with those folks? Or do I close it, <laughs> refer out, um, still get some trickling in people requesting uh, services. So it's figuring out the balance of time now. Okay. But it's a combination of your insurance panel, if you're going to take insurance, whoever you choose to list with online, and social media uh, is a good one too. I think Instagram um, I've maybe gotten one or two from Twitter and I will throw out the caveat that I don't, I just redirect people to my email address when I get DMs. I don't really do the whole DM messaging thing. <laughs> so my email address is on my <laughs> social media or my website. You also have, and I'm sharing the screen on the Twitter, you mentioned Twitter. So I have that. And then you're also on LinkedIn as well. Uh, I've seen multiple pictures where you have different hair color and every color looks good on you and you, you have a good description. I like the, uh, I like the uh, um, tweets that you have as well. I'm not going to highlight all of them, but just if you want to search for it, go ahead and search. But uh, yeah, you're exactly right. The PR piece, um, more on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, more and more of my guests are, are mentioning that that does help round out the PR piece. Uh, don't don't rely on that solely, but you know it, it it definitely helps round it out a little bit. Right. How long after you finished your uh, 
doctorate degree did you start up your practice? Hmm. Five years, almost six. Okay. Yes. Licensing was a, um, that's another thing to think about too after internship um, and passing the EPPP and being aware of uh, license requirements for whatever state you might practice in. Right. And, and every state may be different. Uh, I should point that out as well. Absolutely. So one final question about the practice before we start talking about um, some of your other projects here. Um, how did COVID impact your practice? And I, I'm, what I'm asking here is, obviously it might've changed how you met people you know, in person versus virtually. Did the topics discussed change? Did the presenting problems change? Uh, was there a change, I guess? Uh, did it impact your practice in what way? Sure. So uh, logistically, we obviously went to virtual. Um, that was an adjustment, but fairly straightforward. Um, most of my clientele are within a comfortable uh, age or use of technology. Um, and yes, I would say presenting problems. Uh, I think I joked and kind of said one day, COVID is, COVID for a therapist is having the same conversation all day over and over and over again, because it's anxiety, it's grief, it's trauma, it's the unexpected, it's the unknown, it's isolation. This person doesn't agree with this person about safety protocols in the same house or it, it was a little bit of all of that um, all valid of course because even we as therapists are human too and we're experiencing it right along with them so I think uh, there was quite a bit to navigate uh, during that time and it continues to adjust because now people are talking about the anxiety of whoa the world's opening but are we ready <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> and I was going to say it might be adjusting now or, or changing now as we get over it or through it and, and coming out of it. And then, of course, those periods where we did have some of the injustice and people would come out and, and you know, speak about that. And what I find interesting with friends and family and, and colleagues is, you know, some of the people that were pretty quiet, uh, all of a sudden something happens and they just open up. And right. um, you, you have to do your due diligence and listen and, and then give your opinion and, and be transparent and honest with them. But for your own self, uh, one challenging, I, I didn't mention this, but my mother, my mom is a uh, licensed psychologist as well. So I grew up with that. She was also an English uh, teacher. So she was correcting me left and right on my grammar and everything. Uh, but I appreciate it now. I'm, I, uh, I am attuned to that. But one thing that I always found interesting is if you dis, there's your dog. Yes. <laughs> your beagle, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. He wanted to chime in. Um, or she, um, one thing that I found interesting is it must be challenging as a provider. If you disagree with some of the views that your, your clients are, are you know, portraying, how do you deal with that? Um, you have to stay professional, but how else would you guide them or or help them through that that presenting problem 
Yeah, you're right. It, it certainly can be challenging um, when there are differing things or, or opposing views. Uh, but I think the key is to do our own grounding as therapists. And so being mindful of how we're reacting, <laughs> finding our own breath and staying centered um, and really staying focused on guiding, exploring, staying open with the client to understand uh, what their ultimate goal or objective is for whatever given topic or issue in that moment uh, without it becoming hijacked by <laughs> our own humanity and imperfections. Right. I had another guest on a previous podcast where she did focus on that primarily and she said, hey, we're all human. And you have to realize and allow yourself as the therapist and the psychologist to go ahead and let yourself feel that, not necessarily in front of the client, but afterwards, you know, feel that and then come to terms with that as well. So it's always interesting getting that that viewpoint. Um, I'd like to bring up a topic that's of interest to, to me in researching you and some other uh, recent guests. Um, I found that the vast majority of psychology faculty and psychologists are white. Uh, the numbers are out there um, between 70 and 88%. Why do you think there is such a disproportionate number? Sure. So I think that there are disproportionate numbers uh, in the education system, especially the higher that we go. I think that um, psychology is a topic uh, or field of study that has a lot of stigma in communities of color. And so uh, access to a professional, but then also to psychology being an available topic, even in the high school setting is rare, is growing, but it's rare. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, those two things combined uh, create for significant disparities in what we see, uh, as you just said, within the field, especially at the doctorate level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that leads me to my next question of, you know, I consider myself an advocate and I want to help anybody, um, you know, enter, get more people to enter the psychology field. Um, but what can be done to help increase these numbers? I'll ask you and then I'll, I'll give you my viewpoint as well. Sure. I think um, that's where a lot of us really take that representation and advocacy piece seriously, because we want the future generations to see, hey, I am Black and female and a psychologist, and I have a cool career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is an option for you, and we also need you because our community needs you. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in that regard, it's a very intentionally community-driven or value-driven um, approach. I also think that's where some of the deeper level work uh, within associations, within institutions uh, can happen with some of these new uh, EDI lens work that everyone's uh, really focused on now. And so, yep, hire a diversity officer, but also let that person do the work and help you create policy changes and look at how you're, um, recruiting people and, and what language are you using uh, to attract people and what are the people look like that you're trying to attract and who are you using to attract, you know, there are just so many deeper level things that can be addressed um, other than some of the sort of surface things that 
we have seen in the past. Yeah, no, some good advice. The other thing that I'd add would be, you know, just increasing exposure, as you said, you know, and that's part of our reason why we we like interviewing both academics and um, outside of academics uh, of all races, colors, creeds, uh, viewpoints, mm-hmm. and and that's our goal is to to help those who are interested in psychology and give them some of that information and uh, advice. I had a couple of my guests say, hey, if any of you are uh, reading or, or listening or or viewing this, feel free to reach out to me personally. Mm-hmm. And so they offered their own uh, email. I'm not saying that you should. I'm just saying that that's one way. That's one way of, of helping increase the numbers and awareness. I also think that there's you know a, a particular um, part of the stigma, as you said, where people think, oh, there's no way I could become that. They, they view you so high up on that pedestal when in actuality, uh, if you're really passionate about what you do, then seek out those individuals that can help you and give you a little bit more information and then uh, help you along uh, with that. And then with the internet, a lot of resources out there. Some are good, some are not so good, but, um, you know, that's, that's another way to help increase the numbers as well. So, um, one of my previous podcast guests was Native American and offered specific advice uh, proactively uh, to Native American students. May I ask you if you have any specific advice for Black students interested in uh, psychology? Absolutely. So I think to echo what I said earlier about um, seeking out what representation looks like on the campus that you might be shopping or already at and uh, be intentional about creating community, asking for what you need, asking what resources might already be present, um, as well as your community off campus. So if you are going someplace that uh, is new or not near your, whatever your home base is, what other resources can you tap into? Is it a community organization? Is it a church? Is it a um, sports league? Just somewhere where you can uh, feel safe at home, uh, you know, that your social and identity needs are being met. Um, and and to not hesitate to advocate for yourself too, uh, as needed, because challenges happen, people make mistakes, but uh, to not allow that to dim your, your voice or what your beliefs are. And as I mentioned earlier, if you don't find um, who you're looking for within the program, go outside of that program as well. It doesn't mean that other people in, you know, history or, you know, in any other field, they can still be an advocate and help guide you through that school and that process. The other thing that we're working on uh, as an organization behind the scenes is we're, we have a scholarships page that's dedicated to uh, graduate schools and different types of schools as well. But currently we're working on and, and we'll be including a list of all the HBCUs out there as well. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard of that term before, historically black colleges and universities, because um, some people would rather go there than go to another university or institution just for the support group and and know that they're surrounded by like-minded people as well. So I uh, just wanted to put that out there because that that is beneficial to to find some resources uh, along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned earlier about your project about Dear Black Girl. 
So I'm just going to ask you, what prompted that? I have a feeling now that I've talked to you, what prompted <laughs> it? But um, I want you to tell us a little bit more about this project and, and what led up to this. And then uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to share my screen. Sure. So it is a guided journal um, that is created for Black uh, women to uh, process and explore who they are. I think a lot of times journaling is a great tool uh, for processing emotions and difficult experiences and um, maybe even some traumas or relationship issues. But a lot of times people don't know what to write or they overthink it or it becomes a big deal. So I thought, okay, what if it's a guided process that just offers prompts and questions uh, to help the, the reader think about who they are and think about things to write about. And so that is essentially um, what it is. And it's specific to common themes in the Black experience. So maybe stereotypes or uh, specific things about body image issues or um, past traumas, experiences of racism. Uh, so just a very uh, intentionally created tool um, for Black women. Okay. One last thing that I'll put on the screen. I know that we have to get going here. Um, what's the local time at where you are right now? It is 2.06. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm running over then. Um, I'm 1.06 here. So one last thing that I wanted to uh, bring up on the screen is, uh, of course, your book. And um, this kind of came out of that Dear Black uh, experience. And I uh, wanted to just share that. And then we can uh, say thank you and go our, our, our ways. But um, again, I, while I have this on here, um, thank you for taking the time to meet with me. Uh, I know that you and I have a hard stop here and I'm glad that uh, we're, you were looking at the time here. So I appreciate the time. I wish we had more because I had some more questions for you, but I, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk about this. Um, I look forward to putting this up on the website and helping those who are interested in um, you know, getting into the psychology field. Jessica, thanks again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.